0: But if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at something today that I think is going to be very helpful to all of us. It's going to be very helpful to all of us. One of the things that I think is hard for all of us to go through sometimes, and we all go through it at some point in life, whether we're a young child or whether we're an adult, is when something in our past is revealed about us and we did not want it to come out. I think every one of us have, has, ever, has actually dealt with that. Um, and if you don't have anything in your past that you've ever had revealed that you didn't want revealed, um, then you probably have not gotten close to people. Because if you're close to people, we do harm to one another. I know I do harm to people, and people do me harm as well. And one of the things that's very scary for us is that we get into a pattern of self-defense, if you will, as people as we get older. In fact, one of the things that I think is interesting is when we're younger, we're more prone to admit we're wrong than when we get older many times. In fact, the reason for that is that we have a better defense built up over time. So let, let, me, let me explain what I mean by that. When you're growing up and your parents call you out for something, it's harder for you to, to deflect and defend that. Why? Because mom and dad got you. They know, they know you did it, you can't defend yourself, okay? You can't hide away from what you actually did. But when you get older, what tends to happen is you get more practice, if you will, in how to defend yourself. In in fact, we almost become experts when we get married sometimes, right? Like, we know how to defend ourselves in front of our spouse when we don't want to admit we've done wrong. It's almost a mechanism that we've learned over time. And sadly, what happens is that enters the church. That enters the church in ways that we don't even want to imagine sometimes. Because what ends up happening is we come in on Sunday mornings, we do our part in worshiping the Lord, but in that process, what we've done many times is ignored what we were this last week. And in ignoring what we were this last week, we ended up putting up a front. And we put up a front... What's the reason many times? Because we need others to look at us differently than what we see ourselves for really being, or maybe what God sees us to be. What's really dangerous is when you and I think we're different than what we really are based on the Word of God. And what's scary is just as in Haman's case that we're gonna look at this morning, is that the one moment that certain things come up, we are absolutely embarrassed, deflated, and potentially ruined. Let me encourage you this morning as we look at Haman's life that you take some lessons for yourself because it doesn't matter what age you are. These are lessons that you can learn at any moment in life. It's important to know that no matter what it is that we have done in this life, at one point or another, whether it's in this life or the next, it will all come out. It will all come out. Let's turn our Bibles to Esther chapter 5. We're going to start reading in verses 9 through 14. We're going to look at four things here in this text. Number one, the frustration. Number two, the expectation. Number three, the humiliation. And number four, the revelation. So number one, the frustration. Verses 9 through 14, look what it says. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, "'Besides,' Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. Yet all this avails me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, "Let a gallows be made 50 cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet." And the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. So, what do we start off here in seeing? Haman, here earlier in the chapter, is actually invited to a banquet. He's invited to a banquet by Esther. And he's, she's invited both the king and Haman to this banquet. This is for an exclusive club, if you will. So, Haman's feeling pretty good about himself here, he's excited he's overjoyed. In fact, it tells us that he, <laughs> he had gladness, right? He, what, since when does Scripture tell us that someone like Haman had joy? It does say that right here, right? It says he was joyful and with a glad heart. So he comes out of that banquet excited. Why? Because Esther said that we're going to go ahead and do this again. We're going to have another banquet. In fact, what's interesting is that earlier in the chapter, when you see that Esther has invited him, she had gone through a process of prayer. Because remember, we talked about this last week. Haman had signed a decree on the behalf of the king to exterminate the Jewish population. And Esther is told by Mordecai, look, if you don't step up here, we're finished. And ultimately, you are as well. And if you don't step up, know that regardless, God is still going to send someone to take care of this. So Mordecai, believed so much in the sovereignty of God that even if Esther didn't do anything on behalf of the Jewish people, God was going to send deliverance somewhere else. Believer, that's always an encouragement to all of us. Because we tend to think certain people are the only ones God can use. God is sovereign. He will always use who he needs to to get his will accomplished. It is not always going to be the people you expect. So realize that that's what Mordecai believed with all his heart, is that God is sovereign. He's going to protect his own. What's interesting is Haman is feeling great about his day here. It's like nothing can go wrong, right? There's nothing that can go wrong until he sees Mordecai. Man, what a downer. Went from having a great day to an absolutely terrible day as soon as he saw Mordecai. He restrained himself from lashing out at him. It says that actually here in the text, that he restrained himself. And he went home. He went home to cry to his wife. That's actually what you see in the text. That's not Pastor Roman reading anything into it. But what's interesting is all the things that he enjoyed, the benefits of wealth and prosperity, didn't matter as soon as he saw Mordecai. It only brought him frustration. Remember, Haman had already decreed with the king's permission that the Jewish people would be plundered and annihilated in the very near future. And you'd think with knowing that decree is in place, he would be fine with seeing Mordecai knowing, hey, your days are numbered. I don't have to worry anymore. But it still bothered him. It still bothered him tremendously. You see, what's interesting is this type of stuff actually happens to us more than we'd like to admit. And there's application from Scripture constantly as you read the Word of God. You know, how many of us, let's just let's be practical for a second. We're, we're going to go through some of these things. How many of us have ever planned a nice trip, right? And we planned it months in advance. And for some reason, last minute, it all fell apart. It just didn't go as the way we wanted, right? We got frustrated, we got overwhelmed, we got maybe some of us angry. That didn't go the way we wanted. And in that process, what do we learn about ourselves? That it only takes one thing, right? Or maybe one person to set us off. So let's go through some of this, right? What are different people that can ruin, if you will, our day, like Haman's situation here, right? Well, here's one. People that remind us of our past. You can have a great day, and people that remind you of your past can set that off. Maybe that ex we once had a relationship with, maybe the person that did a serious harm when we were younger. Or maybe it's just someone we haven't spoken to in a while, because the last conversation we had with them was very difficult. What about people that we are currently at odds with? That doesn't happen, right? Like we don't have tension possibly even right now going on? As much as we would not like to admit it, we all have a time or two that we are at odds with others, maybe even in this church. And we would say those people sometimes will ruin our happiness if they're around us. They really don't do anything ultimately horrible, but there's a tension between us. And for some reason, when we see them, it drains the joy out of us. Some people, they're just an annoyance to us, right? They didn't necessarily do anything wrong. They haven't sinned against us. They're just annoying to deal with. Let's be honest. There are certain people, you get around them, it's like, stop. Here's a a group of people that may kill our day, particularly if we've had a good day from the Lord and we've really enjoyed things. People that seem fake. What do I mean by that? There are people that, man, you know how they talk and that the talk doesn't match up the walk. Right? Like everything's always wonderful, everything's always perfect. They've got the perfect house, they've got the perfect family, they've got the perfect kids, everyone else is pale in comparison. You're going, how can that be true? Well, it's not. Because reality is, we do know people like that. And they make us feel like we don't measure up to them. What about people on the other side of that? if you will. People that always have a need to complain. So maybe you're not that, you're not frustrated with people that are always looking like everything's perfect in life. You're, You're just frustrated with people that everything is always horrible, right? Like they're the perpetual Eeyore around you every time. Oh, bother. Every time. They can't enjoy what they've been given by God because frankly, there's always something better to enjoy out there. There's no reason to share anything you're excited about with them because they'll just put you back down in your place, if you will, because they're sad that they didn't get that. These people would not be satisfied if you gave them a better house, a nicer car, a better spouse, or more money to spend. The one word that describes them and the reason you probably stay away from those kind of people is miserable. Well, here's a big one that I think many people don't consider. What if the problem sometimes in the great day that God gives you and that shifts your your perspective and maybe even your joy and your happiness is simply you? Maybe it's not other people. Maybe it's simply you. Maybe you don't need anyone else to kill your mood. Maybe you're your own worst enemy. You're the one that finds something in your past that bothers you that God's blessed you in the present. You don't need anybody else telling you. You remember what you did in the past, and that just ruined today. See, some of us, we have this incredible day with our children, our wives, our our husbands, people in this church, and for some reason, our past creeps in and ruins the moment. It ruins the moment. Our God is a good God. He gives us good things. We're enjoying them, and all of a sudden, it's ruined by the fact that we're reminded of our past. Maybe you're the one that's struggling your spiritual walk with God, so when God gives you a blessing, you immediately turn that blessing into a curse. Oh, you got a raise, and now you literally look at that raise as a curse instead of a blessing. You may not have deserved it, brother or sister, but if God gave you something, you should appreciate it and enjoy it. Maybe you're the one that strives to look perfect in front of others. So you talk a certain way, do things a certain way, you tell yourself you deserve to be happy, and everyone else is the one that deserves misery. Or maybe you're the one that constantly complains. Maybe you're the one that has to find a reason to enjoy God, but frankly, you never get to it. It means nothing to you that God is good because He doesn't seem all that good to you with what has happened recently. It's truly a sad experience for many of us, as it is for Haman here, because with all the good in his life, one person shifted all of that in one day. And I want to really strongly caution you on something. Be careful who you share your day's experiences with. Because the advice that Haman gets here will be very terrible advice later on. In a very short time, actually. Because... The very advice that he received was to build a gallows for Mordecai to be hanged on. Who you share your day with will eventually determine what your next day looks like. The possibilities ultimately for the hanging that's described here in the text are one of the following. To be suspended from a frame by a rope, that's the modern Western hanging. To be impaled upon a pole, or to be fastened to a pole in some fashion. And we're going to get to some of that later on. Don't worry, Haman, you can speed up the process. This is what his wife and his friends are telling him regarding Mordecai. You can build the gallows for him and then go to the king and ask for permission to do so. Well, little little does Haman know, or his wife and his friends, that that isn't exactly what God is in store for him at all. God doesn't have that in store for him. Look at the n- number two, the expectation. Chapter six, verses one through nine. That night, the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records and of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Big Thana and Ther- Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king's servants said to him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king asked him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let his, this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him thus shall it be done to the king to the man whom the king delights to honor <laughs> Haman had one set of plans God had another That night the king can't sleep That night God providentially sends insomnia, if you will, to the king. He can't sleep. He's wrestling. He doesn't know what's wrong. And you know what comes to his mind? The very thing that spares Mordecai. What has been done for Mordecai? God providentially intervenes on behalf of not only the Jewish people, but for Mordecai himself. And it's right before the second banquet. By the way, Esther knows nothing about this. Nothing is implied that Esther knows anything about this going on. The king realizes nothing's been done to show honor or to reward Mordecai for saving his life. And as he's thinking about what to do for Mordecai, Haman comes in to ask that he be hanged. What a divine work of providence here. God, in an incredible act of providence, uses Haman's pride against him, causing his original game plan to get shattered. In fact, Haman is asked what should be done for the one whom the king is to honor, and he automatically, what does he assume? He's talking about me. Who else would he want to honor? I'm going to the banquet with him tonight. It's got to be me. He's so sure that the king is talking about him that he paints the most beautiful picture of what would be expected. He says, I want a royal, there should be a royal robe from the king. A horse ridden by the king in battle. Make sure it has a royal crest so you know it's the king's horse. There needs to be somebody that's high in authority that is to honor that person by telling everyone this person's special and they're to be honored because of the king. Haman is given an incredible opportunity to advise the king in the honor of someone else. All this time, he's the one thinking it's for him. Now, I know we've read this so many times. If you've grown up in the church, you've just read this so many times. But to me, for some reason, I read it again and I see something fresh again in this text. And it's just incredible when you see that very night, the king can't sleep. When given the opportunity to honor someone else, do you secretly wish that it was you that was honored? When given the opportunity to honor someone else, do you secretly wish it was you that's honored? I mean, if we're to be honest, I'm sure that's true. So what are some ways that we can honor others in our modern context today? Here's one. Recognize others' hard work by thanking them personally. Personally. Instead of posting a generic Facebook post about loving people in authority or honoring the cops, whoever it is, personally thank them. Let's go a step further. If you pray for the president, you love the president, write a note. If you appreciate the local police department, write them a note. Let's step out of the generic into the specific. It's very easy for us to tell people we care in a generic way, but we are not specific enough sometimes. Let's show honor by being specific. How about our fathers and mothers? Instead of just posting something on Facebook that I love my mom or I love my dad, what if you called them and told them you love them and you cared? Or you wrote them a note outside of Mother's and Father's Day. That's a way to show honor. See, I think the person that shows more honor is not the one that posts on Facebook that they care when mom and dad are alive, but they go spend time with mom and dad when they're alive without posting it on Facebook. You can post it on Facebook. I'm not against that. I'm just saying it's one thing to not spend time, but tell everybody you love them. It's another thing to do so. What's another way? Give up what others are more gifted at, and focus on what you've been gifted with. Meaning, if there's a task or something you're doing that somebody else can do a much better job, give that to them. That shows them honor. You're not the expert at everything, though you may assume that. I'm not the expert at everything. There are certain topics I don't discuss on Facebook, period. Because I'm no expert. And yes, I could do the same Google research anybody else can. Absolutely. But God has instilled certain gifts in others that He's not instilled in you, and you need to be able to honor those people for what, the gifts that He's given them. Appreciate the differences, brothers and sisters in Christ, appreciate the differences in the church. There's a reason not everyone's like you, God knew what He was doing. Okay, He knew what he was doing. Help those that have labored instead of just merely telling them you appreciate what they're doing. Particularly if somebody is older and they've been doing a lot here, let's say in the context of the local church, it's important for us to step alongside them and help them out, not just tell them we appreciate that they're working hard and then they're on their last leg. Okay, We need to step in and help out. Give those deserving of honor, public praise, recognition, or even a gift worthy of the work that they've accomplished. That's a way to show honor. Here's another one Highly regard others in the way you speak of them when they're not around. Highly regard others in the way that you speak of them when they're not around. Your honor is most, the honor for that person is most tested when the person you've publicly praised is maligned privately. If you want to show honor to others, be careful what is said when they're not around. So you want to show honor to others, how can you be an honorable person? Let's ask that question for a second. Well, here's some ways. Number one, You and I give credit to God for everything we've accomplished. God gives you the very breath that you breathe. The fact that you and I are here this morning is because God allowed us to be here this morning. We recognize the value of others instead of heaping praise for ourselves. That's how you can be an honorable person. When you get something done, you want to deflect that to somebody else. And you don't want to take the credit for what you've accomplished in that process. Because at the end of the day, it's a team effort. Most people don't get a lot done by themselves. They usually have others that help them. If this church is to go anywhere, I can't do it all on my own. I need leadership with me. And so many of you have stepped into all these different roles here in the church, helping me behind the scenes, and I personally want to thank you, and I know I've come up to many of you directly and said, thank you, myself, because you're honorable people. You do what you say. We live out a disciplined life, not based on how we feel, but what God has entrusted us with. That's how you're an honorable person. Do you think honorable people have bad days? Yes, they do. But honorable people know that God's entrusted them with something and they can't live off of the feeling that they have that day. If they've been given a task, they've got to get it done. What's another way that we show that we're an honorable person? We don't use others only for our advantage. We're not in it for the money, the prestige, or the power, if you will. We're in it for something greater, and that's making Christ known. What's another way we can show that we're an honorable person? We're always grateful for the life God has given to us and the people that He has placed in our path. We don't take any of that for granted. The moment you and I take those things for granted is the moment that we don't find ourselves to be honorable before God. So we see here that Haman is heaping the praise for himself, but little does he know. That he's about to be humiliated. Number three, the humiliation, verses 10 through 14. Look at this. It says then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested, and do so for yourself. For Mordecai, the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai and led him on the horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman, what's the word there? Hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. Very humiliating experience. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. So, they're not even done yet. God's not even done dealing with Haman here. Just as soon as he thinks... I've got it all figured out. The floor drops beneath him. And what's interesting is in verse 14, and we'll get to this later on, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. He doesn't even have a time to stop and really consider all the things that people have said to him. One thing that Haman was not expecting was that his day was to be one of humiliation. And that's exactly what just happened here. The very plan that he came in with fell apart. And the very person he wanted to get rid of, he had to promote. Imagine the look on his face. This is where the Bible comes alive, believer. Imagine the look on someone's face that is thinking that they're about to get a big promotion only to promote the person that they did not want to promote at all. They're the worst person that they considered. He was to do it for the very man that he came to that king to ask to be hanged. Talk about humiliating. Now imagine with me if someone were to ask you what would be the perfect day to you, right? Like what would the perfect day look like? Now some of you would probably start off with breakfast in bed, coffee with a steak and eggs, at least that would be me, a drive out to the beach, you know, a nice umbrella so you don't get burnt, right? You know, lunch on a deck, servers serving you uh, with all portions of food, endless portions of food. Maybe you then would like to go on a shopping spree, you know, just buy whatever you want, and someone said, hey, just go to the store. You can buy whatever you want. Imagine that. It'd be a great day, right? You get to watch. You know, you, buy, you know, like for us men, we'd buy a new TV to watch the Southern Grace live stream. No, I'm joking. But the ability to be able to buy whatever we want, that'd be a really nice day, right? Like, just here's a blank check. Do whatever you want with it. Maybe eat at a fancy restaurant that night. Come home to a relaxing couch. You sit, you sit with your feet up and you're getting ready for bed, right? It just, that's the perfect day for some of us. Now imagine if I told you to take that perfect day and give it to the person that you can't stand the most. What would you do? What would your response be? Would you like have a heart attack? (gasps) What? I have to do that for them? I have to go do do this and this and, and, and give them whatever they want? Are you kidding me? Hopefully the person you can't stand the most is someone that you're, not, you're closest to. That would not be good. Hopefully you'd want to do this for those that are closest to you. See, Haman didn't get to say, oh, you, you know what, King, I don't think this is a good idea. <laughs> no, no, King, uh, let's, let's, let's tweak some of this. Now that you mentioned it was Mordecai, let's rearrange this, please. In fact, the king tells him to leave nothing undone of all that he has said. Don't leave any of it undone. Imagine with me the humiliation of a man so full of himself that the very man he wanted to get rid of, he has to praise in front of others. Now listen to what happens when he comes home after this. This is where I like what the the New Living Translation says. Look at this. It says, afterward, Mordecai returned to the palace gate, but Haman hurried home. Dejected and completely humiliated. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends what had happened, his wise advisors and his wife said, listen to this, this is very interesting. Since Mordecai, this man who has humiliated you, is of Jewish birth, you will never succeed in your plans against him. It will be fatal to continue opposing him. I would argue with you that this is his final warning. This was his last chance to repent, right here. This will be the end of you, literally, his wife says, if you continue opposing Mordecai. She saw something that Haman refused to see. But just as he has just dealt with this public humiliation, there is more to unfold that very day. Number four, the revelation. Starting in verse 14 to chapter 7, verse 10. The revelation. It says this, While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And on the second day... At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, "'What is your petition, Queen Esther? "'It shall be granted you, and what is your request? "'Up to half the kingdom. "'It shall be done.' "'Then Queen Esther answered and said, "'If I have found favor in your sight, O king, "'and if it pleases the king, "'let my life be given me at my petition, "'and my people at my request. "'For we have been sold, my people and I, "'to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. "'Had we been sold as male and female slaves, "'I would have held my tongue.' Although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So the king Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, "'Will he also assault the queen while I'm in the house?' As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now Harbanah, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, "'Look!' The gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. As though it couldn't get any worse for Haman. His plot against the Jewish people is about to get unfolded. His plot against the Jewish people and Mordecai are exposed here. He goes to the banquet as Esther asks, and she ends up revealing to the king that she's pleading for her people's life. Haman thought that he was so special that he was invited. What he did not know was his pride was going to be his undoing here. His pride would reveal who he is. The king is absolutely furious to find this out about Haman, that it was his game plan to exterminate the Jews. And what's interesting is Haman begs and pleads for his life, except this time it's too late. There's no redo. There's no second chance. It's over. The very tree he carved out for Mordecai was now to be used against him. In fact, the king wasn't sure what to do next. You see that in the text, right? And someone comes along and says, hey, look, there are the gallows that Haman designed for who? Mordecai. That made it very simple for the king, what he was supposed to do next. He didn't need to have a counseling session there. He's going there. Here's the part that I think we miss sometimes when we see this text. The king had just honored Mordecai, who had saved his life previously. Haman's not looking good at all. If if, if the king is between two places... That's not the case here. How do we know that? Because it's very clear to the king, Haman's the one that's wrong. Because Mordecai actually cared to save the king's life. Listen to what one author says about this punishment here. In the work of the Greek historian Herodias, impalement is regularly presented as Persian punishment. Given the setting setting of Esther, it thus seems likely that the manner of punishment for Haman was in fact impalement. In other words, the 50-cubit tree built by Haman was intended to display Mordecai's body impaled in such a way that no one could avoid seeing it. As it turned out, however, it was Haman whose death, And the folly leading to it was put on display for the entire population. What a miserable, sad ending for a man full of himself. The day of reckoning had come for him. Now, here's the truth. The day of reckoning is coming for all of us. None of us escape it. We will stand either condemned or forgiven. None of us can do anything to undo our past. But we're still given a chance to repent today. So in conclusion, I'm going to ask you to ask yourself a very personal question. Who are you really? Who are you really? Do you know Christ? Are you a follower of His? Do you find yourself Faking it to convince yourself and others that you're doing just fine? Can I encourage you today to repent? Turn from sin to the Savior, just as you did years ago if you trusted Him. If you've hurt others in ways that you may not even realize, why don't you go back and own it and ask for forgiveness? Come clean before others. Especially if there are things that you've done to those that are closest to you. Don't wait for it to be revealed about you. Every one of us in here have personal sins that nobody knows about. And we need to be honest before God and others. We need to stop with our self-righteousness and get on track with what God wants us to do. He wants us to own sin and to turn from it to Him. If someone does something against you and they ask for forgiveness, don't be that self righteous person and say, I don't really care. I'm not going to forgive you. You don't deserve that. You know what? You're right. They don't deserve it. Neither do you. None of us deserve forgiveness. That payment on the cross was not for people that deserved it. It was for undeserving man who sinned against a holy God. If you don't know Christ, you need to repent today. You need to realize that you will not just have this life. You have eternity to think about. And because you have eternity to think about, realize that one day you will stand before God and you have to give an account for your life. And it will either be covered under the blood or be under your righteousness, which is filthy and vile, which doesn't stand a chance. The choice is ours. We can either choose to repent and follow Christ, or to trust in our own righteousness as rotten and filthy. Let's pray.